0: guys, what's going on? So today I'm really excited because on the show, we've got Dr. Andy Galpin, and he's going to be talking to us about optimizing muscle growth for power lifters. Uh, So Andy, first off, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've been following you for a long time. You've been putting out some really, really amazing content, both on YouTube with your your five-minute, 25-minute physiology, um, a lot of the articles and the podcasts that you've been doing. Um, So can you give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and kind of what you've been involved in?
1: yeah sure i'm a professor at cal state fullerton and i'm also the director of of the center for sport performance out here so um, one part sports scientist if you will we study in our center we have everything under the umbrella of biomechanics muscle physiology we do a little nutrition stuff um, sports psychology kind of a whole host of different things that would fall under you know that general umbrella strength and conditioning Uh, i teach in the areas of uh, graduates, you know, and senior level sports nutrition program design, basic strength and conditioning things, um, kind of strength and conditioning version of physiology, and then on the side of that, I work with professional athletes, kind of on all things team performance. And so these are mostly combat sport athletes, so um, a lot of UFC fighters, wrestlers, boxers, things like that. Some major league baseball players, and, and, and some handful of other things on the outside. So that's generally what occupies most of my day.
0: That's awesome. And, and so you, you've done quite a bit of research. Um, I saw you were doing some research with, uh, I'm not sure if this came out of your lab or if it was just one of your colleagues it was a while back on, on like trans athletes. And, and I think you're doing some work on uh, enhanced athletes as well. And so there's been a lot of really cool things that, uh, that have actually been coming out of your lab that it's been really, really interesting to watch. So I'm really glad that we've got you here actually to kind of chat about some of these things. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Um, So let's just start off with, uh, can you kind of give a general overview of, you know, some of the more primary mechanisms of of muscle hypertrophy and somewhat of a relative breakdown of their hierarchical order?
1: So the, the starting place for all this conversation was probably in due credit to Brad Schoenfeld and he had a published a nice review article. It's probably been eight years or more. Is it a 2011 paper? Something like that, yeah. And I think it's called the the, the mechanism of of muscle hypertrophy or the three mechanisms or something. And in that, he's the first to really speculate that there's really three likely um, causes or or ways you can induce it. So uh, very quickly, one of them would be mechanical tension. So you can think of this as like lifting heavy, if you will. So the muscle itself has to contract with a lot of force. Number two being metabolic. Disturbances or metabolic damage, if you will, metabolic disruption, however you want to think about it. But this is the burn, right? This is something where you like, you you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm doing a lot of reps and I feel a metabolic thing. It's not necessarily heavy per se, but you would feel the burn. And the three would be actually muscle damage itself. And so at the time, most of that was speculative, and we didn't know a lot about the mechanisms. And muscle damage is exactly what you think it would be, right? And so we didn't know many things about whether or not that those are even true. If so, do you need all three? Do you need one? Or is one sufficient? Do you need two? And what's the best way to do that? And so all those questions weren't known at the time. You know, fast forward almost a decade later, and we do have a lot more answers in those areas. And so the way you can kind of think about this practically is, you know, people who have done nothing but primarily heavy lifting. So this is probably think of this in the case of a weightlifter, Olympic weightlifter, or a power lifter and you're pretty much spending most of your time doing triples or lower right so mm-hmm. you do some of course higher stuff but for the most part it's really you know ones twos threes and fours and fives are even crazy um you know eights and tens are really really rare in the program and certainly almost nothing past that and but yet th- they tend to be very muscular if they spend that time but they're not nearly as muscular as say someone who's focusing simply on aesthetics right and so clearly there's some hypertrophy there when they're using they're not using the burn the metabolic damage the metabolic disturbance at all they're they're not using a ton of muscle damage either because uh, the volumes are generally fairly low well, but they're getting a lot of mechanical tension and then if you can kind of work your way and I, will, I can do it if you want but you can work your way through the entire spectrum of going from you know bodybuilder or a Weightlifters, lifters, kind of up to bodybuilders, then all the way through like CrossFit athletes and folks that are doing like 25s and 30s and reps to 40 all the way up. Mm-hmm. And then you can extend that all the way out to even things like blood flow restriction training. And that's fa- fairly popular now, but at the time it wasn't. So this is an instance where the load is almost nothing, right? So you're talking 30%, very, very, very light, if not less. And you can still see a reasonable amount of hypertrophy there. And so that would support the fact that mechanical tension wasn't necessarily needed. Um, but the, the metabolic damage was, was enough to induce the same thing. And then you can kind of fill out that story by looking at the muscle damage picture. And when you see that there is some correlation between the amount of damage you get and the growth you get, but that correlation is very low, actually very weak. And so it's very clear that all three of these um, are possible, but not necessarily any one of them is mandatory to induce muscle growth. And so there's still a lot of questions we have, but at this point, the research is at a place where I can say it's probably uh, clear, fairly clear that the mechanical tension, so the heavy part, is probably, um, and I'll, I'll use a couple of qualifiers here, probably, mostly, definitely the most important of those two. So it's fairly clear at this point where you know again if if muscle hypertrophy is just the only goal you're not worried about getting stronger as well or any of those things if you're just trying to grow but still mechanical tension reigns supreme so call that you know 50% or more of the pyramid and then metabolic um, damage and uh, muscle damage are 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 much smaller of the pyramid so they're relevant. Um, And and that's pretty clear. So that's a basic overview of the the general mechanisms.
0: One thing that I always kind of found interesting was when when that review paper came out, I don't know if it was like maybe 2018 or or 2019, uh, the Schoenfeld paper, when he was looking at like extremely high volumes with like as low as 30% load, um, it seemed like everyone's response was, see, you don't need any heavy weights, you can do this, you can do that. But to me, it seemed a little bit. Like, I don't know, it seems a little bit preemptive because at the same time, it's like, okay, sure. Well, at, you know, in an acute sense, yes, the, the hypertrophy is going to be pretty similar, but I felt like the potentiation that you'd get from strength over the long-term wasn't necessarily being like counted as significant. And in my opinion, anyways, that does seem to be something that I've noticed to be, to be pretty important if, if you're looking for long-term hypertrophy gain. So could I kind of get you to, to speak on that side of things?
1: Yeah, so you also have to keep in mind, because you bring up another tangential point of, and I, I specifically said, like, this only counts for hypertrophy, right? Yeah, yeah. So in other words, if you look at the, the, the different training styles, well, it's very, very clear that the metabolic um, damage one, that the burn, actually results in no strength gains, typically. Mm-hmm. So you don't get any strength gains at all, and, and the muscle damage one, you might get some, um, so in one place, you're clearly getting basically none, but the mechanical tension, the heavy lifting, is, is actually really, really, really strongly correlated with, turns out, getting stronger, right? Shocking. So uh, if you're trying to get strong and big, or at least you want some kind of increase in strength while you're doing it, then again, this is now just a clear case for mechanical tension being the thing there. And to, to bring it back to your point, what we don't have, and what we probably honestly never will have, is much knowledge past what happens after the first, say eight to 12 weeks of training. And this is what I think you're kind of alluding to is sure you might get an equal amount of growth in the first eight weeks of training, especially if you're untrained or you know lowly trained. Uh, no matter what you do, you'll probably be there. But what happens in the next six weeks or the next six years? Well, that's very, very different. And some of these studies have looked at somewhat well-trained individuals to kind of tease that out a little bit. Um, but it's still pretty unclear because even getting someone who's well-trained, and I've done a number of these studies, it's, it's really, really difficult to get the same level of training. Even if you put in qualifiers like you have to squat this amount or you have to go lift this, like it's still really, really subjective and, and really the groups vary quite a bit. And so we don't know the longer-term implications. And so because what you'll see a lot of times the bodybuilding community argue over are things like, well, you know, I just focus on the things that drive – hypertrophy and then other folks say no actually you need to send some of your phases getting really damn strong because then when you go back to hypertrophy you're able to do those sets at a much higher intensity and that will actually in a longer run drive greater hypertrophy and so those questions are are somewhat unresolved scientifically um, but I would actually hedge towards you on that one in, in saying that yeah like just doing the one that only gets you some hypertrophy and compromises strength gains um as a certain phase of your training you know six week block here or you know pre-competition or, or whatever phase you want to do it and that's fine but if that's your general training approach I, I think you're going to be missing the boat quite a bit on some potentially even hypertrophy let alone strength gains
0: what sort of variation would you i guess preference if the primary objective is performance and powerlifting um, and i see variation from like a load volume exercise variation all that sort of standpoint like all-inclusive
1: well, at this point, for, if you're talking specifically for powerlifting, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that the science from our end is nearly as robust as what the practitioners would say. In other words, it's hard for me to argue based on the science we have available at this moment that we know much more about that specific question than what Louis Simmons would tell you. I mean, geez. If you, <laughs> I, so my answer, honestly, would be like, well, probably listen to the people right now that have trained... 50 people in that, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we have some basic principles there, but really those folks, um, just, just to have, their, their evidence is better is the easiest way to put it. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't even want to really comment and give you specific examples because I don't coach power lifters. I don't compete in it. And uh, I mean, I could I could do it, but I'd just be regurgitating what all these other people say. Right. So
0: Okay, awesome. So one thing that's always kind of interested me was Kind of where people's caps are in terms of muscle growth. So you know everyone has kind of experienced that sort of like ceiling, whether it's genetic or or whatever, where they just can't really seem to to grow more muscle or grow more strength. So specifically when when we're talking about muscle, why does that happen? Like what are the actual I guess physiological limitations that that cause us to to sort of slow down that process?
1: Yeah, um, actually the I would encourage you to take a look at and follow. Kevin Murek, M-U-R-A-C-H at the University of Kentucky in the Muscle Biology Lab there. This is pretty much what he does. Um, Jimmy Bagley as well at San Francisco, two great folks. So yeah, I mean, I, I can go through the basic background on what the current theories are if you'd like, but my, I'll jump straight to the answer by saying we still don't know because even something that we thought was pretty clear a couple of years ago, the mononuclear domain theory, mm-hmm. and Kevin has shown pretty clearly uh, that this is not true. And so we're left kind of honestly back at square one being like, what the fuck? I don't know. Um, We just, (laughs) we we know some things are correlated and it tends to be things like this. And this seems to be associated, but when you try to actually make that happen and specifically, so you try to, I'll say this way, when you try to demonstrate direct causality, it just fails. And the other issue we have is, um, and sometimes it's appropriate to use Murian models and other ones it's not. And in this particular case, when you take the human research and you compare that to the rat or the, the mouse research, it's not syncing up. So it, I'm just not sure at this point what relevance satellite cells, what relevance mononuclear AI have, um, even the role of say testosterone, like all these things are clearly related somehow. And you can design a study where you show relationship, but again, showing like a this goes up by 10, therefore your muscle increases by 10. Um, We're just, we're just nowhere near that. Uh, At best, it's like, you know, this goes up by a thousand and then therefore your muscle goes up by three. Like, yeah. Okay. They're related. Great. But like, what happened to the other 997? Yeah. We don't know.
0: No, that makes sense. uh, (laughs) I would imagine that would be like pretty frustrating sometimes as a researcher where you're like accumulating all this data and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, well, turns out the last five years, <laughs> we were on the wrong track. Now, time to pivot and uh, go in another direction.
1: Well, it's honestly it's not frustrating. It's always exciting mm-hmm. because when you do that, it is the, it's kind of like throwing away and cleaning out your garage. Yeah. It's cleansing because you're like, oh, hey, okay, all this shit we got to throw away. We don't have to worry about yeah. this. We don't, this doesn't occupy my brain anymore because this yeah. is clearly not it. Um, and that also, like when we when we go through things and we, even when, I, when I write papers or, speak on podcasts and stuff i always do it with a a bit of well like we ah, kind of it uh and that's yeah. because i know whatever i think is even like solid right now you know could be two years i come back and be like, yeah, now that turned out it looks great at the time but it's not it's not actually what we think happens anymore so that's just mm. this is part of being a scientist um it's it's actually you should be filled with less certainty than more uh, yeah that's, that's the whole point of science so actually
0: it was funny because there was a i can't remember when it was published, but there was a paper that came out a while back that essentially looked at several PhD um, uh, PhDs, and they were looking at their level of confidence in predicting future outcomes or something like that for their athletes. And essentially, like the more confident they were, the less ability they had to actually predict future outcomes. The less confident they were, the the more precision they they demonstrated. And and I thought that was super interesting. And then it's also kind of goes hand in hand where, you know, anytime you're looking at an expert, they're always like, well, I don't know. It kind of, they sort of seem like they're like fumbling if you don't really have any background in there because there's like so much nuance. Um, and then yeah, you get it, it's classic, speaking on like six pack shortcuts. Who's like,
1: this is the way. Eat yeah, avocado, I mean, so you're going to get jacked. It's Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the totally. explanation of it. But uh, that's also, I typically find it's, um, it's experience, right? So those that actually do it tend to have a lot less confidence, which mm-hmm. sounds uh, antithetical, but it's not, right? So if you're like, oh yeah, I did it one time with someone or like I watched this guy on Instagram or I heard this dude, um, his YouTube page and he said, this is how it works and he's strong, whatever. But the when you actually do it and you put it in place and you're like, wow, okay. 300 times it didn't work. And you just, you have all this actual experience. You tend to be a lot less confident Mm-hmm. as well as if you do that and you're considering other factors, if you're being closed to other factors, then you could be convinced and strictly like this is always working, but it's probably not, right? So humans are complex. It's very difficult to pin things down to a one-to-one linear relationship. And
0: so one of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, about muscle damage was um... That the relationship isn't necessarily like clear like it, it doesn't scale linearly but then at the same time there does seem to be like some correlation so i guess like how i usually explain it to my my athletes is like especially newer ones I'll, I'll kind of be like look if you're never sore and you're not growing it probably means you're not working hard enough but if you're growing whether you're sore or not doesn't seem to really make a difference you know i'll kind of usually like give give a caveat like that um but I've I've heard you kind of explain it in a, a little bit of a different way, which um sort of talking about like a point system almost. Um can can you explain like the acute relationship and how that kind of differs from from like the chronic relationship or or, or scaling linearly to actually seeing differences in, in muscle growth?
1: Yeah, honestly it's six one way, half a dozen the other. Mm-hmm. You and I are saying the same thing. Basically, I, I use a different description, but it's it's identical in the fact that um you know if you scaled yourself on a point system of one to ten you know ten being you're sore for a month that couldn't move one being Mm -hmm. you didn't feel anything um if you're working out and you're in the ones and twos and threes you're probably not going to be growing a whole lot uh the inverse if you're eight nine ten and you're so sore that you have to take literally weeks off or you know a whole week off well that's actually going to bite you in the ass because you won't then be able to train as frequently you have to take more time off. Um, you'll go back and it's your day to work out and it's your time and you got child care and you got off work and you're so damn sore you can't move and so you have to do something else. Well that actually hurt you um, quite a bit and so there's actually a decent amount of research looking at what matters total volume completed or say breaking that volume in half and doing it more frequently or maybe in this example a third. So say you want to do 100 total sets in a week, 100 total reps. Um, is it better to get all those 100 done in a day and then just get brutally sore and recover as long as you can repeat that every seven days, if you will, or of those 100 repetitions, should you break it up do 25, 25, 25, 25? And so you can look to that research to find your answers. Um, you could, Either one could possibly work, but generally when you when you factor in, when you take the science and say, okay, well, how does this end scale to human life? Um, typically, if you're getting to those extreme levels of, of soreness, unless you're I mean, really, really high level folks who like this is their whole life and, and mm-hmm. you, you're that level of commitment. Outside of that, you probably should live in like the four to, to seven range uh, if you wanna be able to train as frequently. And again, this is also assuming you have, um, or especially if you have more than one actual training goal. If your only goal is to grow muscle and this is it and you're in a bulking phase, it's a little bit different because you like say, okay, I'll do my quads on Monday. And you might work out tomorrow, but you're going to do triceps tomorrow. And then you're going to do different muscle groups in a classic kind of like body part split. So by the time you get back to your quads, it might be seven days anyways. Well, it's very, very, very different than say a, a power lifter who's like, yeah, I'm deadlifting Monday and that's mostly my back, but your quads are still going because you're living heavy as hell. And then you go to squat on Thursday and you're still wrecked sore. Well, that's going to absolutely compromise Thursday's training session. So um, you extend that to the athletes I work with. And it's like, you can't do quads on Monday because we use our quads every single day because we're, we're, we're moving and no matter what we do, training wise. So it doesn't work that way. I can't get them to that level of soreness because they're not going to have six days off before they use their tricep again, because they use all muscles all day or close to it. So it just depends on the outcome goal, the individual, and what you're going after. But yeah, typically, you know, I don't like, would like to see much more than six uh, out of 10 in terms of soreness depending again depending on the phase um certain phases of our training for our fighters like it's cool and we'll get to even eight that's fine um but most of the part that number is gonna get too high because you're just gonna compromise training
0: one thing that's kind of gained a lot of popularity is uh like fiber type specific hypertrophy so there there was a a paper recently by i think it was this year actually by schoenfeld and colleagues where they looked at um high rep versus low rep and and kind of looked at the soleus, which is predominantly slow twitch and things like that. And they didn't really seem to find a difference. And it it seems anyways, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the jury's still out. They don't necessarily know. um, But from the research that I've seen, it seems to sort of be leaning in the direction of not necessarily being overly relevant. Um, Do you have any sort of experience in in fiber type hypertrophy? Like what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So a couple of things that are extremely clear. Any general form of strength training will preferentially target um, fast twitch fibers almost always or twitch. The question is, is there a repetition range within that paradigm that is then more fast twitch or, or slow twitch. So an example, if you were to jog for an hour. That's clearly going to be um, induced more hypertrophy, the slow twitch fibers and fast twitch fibers in part because many of the fast twitch fibers will never even be activated. So, and we see this clearly, we, we've, I mean, geez, I'm probably getting honestly close to a million now at this point of individual muscle fibers we've studied in my lab. And I can say like, very, very clearly, folks that are highly endurance trained, uh, not only do they have large, slow twitch fibers, but their slow twitch fibers are often, if not most of the time, larger than their fast twitch fibers. And so there's very clearly an ability to have a fiber-type specific hypertrophy. That, that's mm-hmm. unquestionably documented. Um, you compare that to, again, any form of strength training. Doesn't matter you're doing triples, fives, tens, body-body tw- Those are generally going to be more fast driven and endurance stuff is gonna be more slow twitch driven. The question becomes, once you zoom into just strength training, can you do, say, sets of five and preferentially uh, hypertrophy the fast switch fibers and do sets of 30, say, or 25 or 50 and preferentially target and hypertrophy the slow twitch fibers? So that is the question. and I would say that for five or so years, there's been gaining momentum that the answer is yes. Uh, however, a paper did come out recently where they failed to find that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw that baby out with the bathwater quite yet. And there's a whole host of technical reasons why, uh, but I'll, I'll keep it simple and, and just say that those studies are complicated and they're more complicated than even those scientists I believe realize. Um, when you get to this level of morphology, it's your techniques in your laboratory matter a tremendous amount to your results. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not even speaking to these specific authors of this paper, but um there's a lot of people that do muscle physiology research and they do what we would call like not even not gold standard. I would say they call them like nickel standard. Even worse than nickel standard. They're just they're just really bad. Um mm-hmm. so just be careful until we get the real high polish on that stuff and we get really, really precise measurements done. And that's done in multiple labs and we've seen it across multiple communities. Then again, this is no slight to those particular studies. I would say the same if I had one study come out from my lab. It's like, well, let's see it demonstrated in other labs. Let's see other people reproduce the findings. And if we all tend to see it, start seeing the same thing, then I'd have more confidence in my own confidence in my own results. Okay. So it's it's, again, it's not, nothing to do with those folks, but so that's what I'd say is we currently don't know. Um, I think it's going to depend on a lot of factors. So are you doing sets of five versus sets of 12? You're doing sets of five versus sets of 20? Are you doing sets of 30? What about sets of 50? Like it's not going to be the same answer with all of them. Is it eccentric only? Is it eccentric and concentric? Is it like all, all these different variables that can be modified? Well, what were the rest of them? the intervals. I think when you change all those variables, you're going to start getting different answers to this question. So I don't think it's as clear as, well, it happens or doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It clearly has an ability to happen and it clearly has an ability to not make a difference. If you did a set of five versus a set of six, that probably wouldn't cause much difference. So it's a spectrum over here. There's no difference over here. There clearly is. The question is where in the middle does it cross over and you can't like, that's just going to take a shit ton of studies for us to, to kind of map that crossover period
0: out right and and so one thing i think a lot of people are interested in is you know what, what is their genetic makeup like what's the actual fiber type distribution that they have and so i know that they're they're you know we do have the ability to transition a lot of that has uh you know obviously genetic root but then also based on, on environmental factors and our training and stuff like that so how, how much of it is, you know, obviously not necessarily like a specific quantification, but generally speaking, how much of that is, uh, going to be based on our genetics and then how much can we actually influence that just through our own lifestyle or training habits and, and things like that?
1: So anytime you, you talk genetics versus lifestyle, so, um, y- y- the answer is both, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's clearly both. So let's look at your, how tall you are. Is that driven by lifestyle or genetics? It's both. It's very clearly both, right? If you, are, if you go suffer through malnutrition, you don't get enough nutrients and enough calories, you will never reach the height of your genetic potential, right? People are getting taller. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not really sexually selecting for taller people anymore. It's the fact that we have better nutrition now, so we're getting to there. So there is, you cannot predict and execute a single variable, for the most part, that is only genetic or only lifestyle-driven especially when you talk like exercise type of things. It's obviously both. Again, the question is Mm -hmm. how much of each is really determining? So, you know, because examples we get here, like, you know, pick your favorite uh, Usain Bolt, right? Okay, clearly no matter what you and I do, and you know this analogy, right? So I'm not going to finish it. You know where that goes. Okay, so that's not the question. The question is within your own abilities, how much can you change, right? So you're uh, the furthest you could ever push your genetics to the furthest that another person can push them, those are not fair comparisons. So there's clearly a genetic component, but within yourself, we see basically unlimited plasticity. What I mean is given enough time and exposure, you will see basically unlimited changes in your fiber type in any direction. The question becomes how much time and exposure can you actually put on yourself? So when we look at twin studies, for example, and you see monozygous twins, this means they have the same DNA, like quite literally, right? Not brothers, exactly the same DNA. They're they're a red clone of each other and they have differences in training for say eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, we start to see differences in fiber type. It happens clearly, right? Now you extrapolate that out to the 10 year, 20 year, and then our stuff, the 30 year, 35 year differences. And then we see the differences in fiber type, you know, being from like one twin being 50% fast twitch and 50% slow twitch, to the other twin being 95% slow twitch. So I, I don't know how much more range one would hope for, <laughs> right? Like it, you, you, it's basically unlimited. Well, the question is, do you have 35 years? Um, do you have extreme differences? So the more time and the, the greater variation. So if you had a monozygous twin and you did nothing and your monozygous twin lifted, uh, did 30% of the one rep max for a set of five once a month. Well, after 40 years, you're probably not gonna be that different because there was a time component there, but there wasn't many exposures. Mm-hmm. The other end of the spectrum, right? If you twin did absolutely nothing, it, let's make it extreme your twin literally laid in the bed, did get out of the bed for, for five months and you lifted for 20 hours a week. Well, after five months, you would see dramatic changes in both of you because what the other twin is doing is not stable. They're actually causing a change by being physically inactive while you're going the opposite direction with your activity. So you would see massive differences between you there. So it's hard to give you numbers because numbers don't exist and they don't work in this scenario because it depends on the exposure uh, and, and time. Both of those factors are incredibly relevant. We also know that nutrition, uh, air pollutants, there's all kinds of things, cold temperature, all of these things influence your fiber type. So you, again, you can't just be like, well, I did sets of 10 and my brother did sets of five. Well, are you eating the exact same? Are you sleeping the exact same? Are you live in the same place? Well, all that's going to influence um, what muscle groups are you talking about. So it's, it's fairly complicated.
0: When you're looking at like fiber type distribution and something like age or, or gender, uh how do these things impact um i guess the actual distribution do we see some some sort of a natural uh change in in distribution over over time
1: Yep, yeah, pretty clearly you're gonna lose your faster fibers as you age
0: and is that more it's like a sarcopenia thing or is that just like that actually happens like you know in the 30s and 40s and stuff like that
1: well what do you mean by sarcopenia i'm not trying to be pedantic with you but
0: no, yeah. no totally yeah.
1: Some people don't really understand what that term means. Um, so, like when you say aging, 30 is is not particularly considered old, uh, nor is 40. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, sarcopenia doesn't just happen at seven year olds, either. And so, uh, you you will start to lose your muscle mass. Um, usually, most folks in the mid to late 30s will start clicking down. Um, that's that that number is increasing. Um, so most weeks. Folks can even hold on to it in their 40s and 50s, and then it starts to to go down. But even, you know, according to what we the stuff we would do, a 50 year old would not even be considered old. 55 is middle aged, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, but they will often start demonstrating reductions in fast twitch fibers at that age. Certainly by the time we get 60, 70, 80, 90, like we've done some studies with 90 plus year olds, athletes, people that don't stop competing. These are Olympic and world champions in the 1940s and 50s and they've not stopped competing since, right? So you're talking 60 to almost 70 straight years of competing in various races and things like that. So when I say athletes, I, I truly mean that. These are 92, 93 year old, 88, 89 year old athletes. Um, so what we can see is if you don't use the fast switch fibers, you, you're going to lose them. And it's difficult to not use your slow twitch fibers because they are activated for most activities of daily living. So walking, Making dinner, things like that. Your fast food fibers are only activated during very, very high uh, effort, specifically high resistance type of training. So, not not conditioning, not endurance type of stuff. So, if you don't use those, you can imagine over the course of 30 years, eventually those things will go away. The nerve endings there will will stop making that connection. The fibers tend to stay there, but you lose the dendrites, so you lose the 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 activation of them, and so. Those fibers will do a thing called fiber-type grouping. They'll come together. But yeah, the loss of fast-rich fibers, in fact, the NIA, the National Institute of Aging, will basically de- define sarcopenia as the loss of fast-rich fibers, mm-hmm. um, the unnecessary loss. Some of that's going to happen with aging. Now, it's not directly what they say, but it, it's so closely tied, it's almost synonymous to say those two things. So yeah, it's pretty clear that that happens with aging. And yeah, in the mid to 30s to 50s, somewhere in that area is when you're going to start losing them. Um, now, other folks don't. Um, I mean, I just tested my vertical jump last week, and it's almost as high as it's ever been. Um, certainly in my mid-30s, so I'm not, like, nearing that drop yet. Mm-hmm. So with your activity, you're able to preserve uh, those for, for quite some time. Um, what we do see is if you look at, like, the strength records. So if you look at world records in Olympic weightlifting or uh, powerlifting, and you compare that to world records in sprinting. And if you do that across age categories, right? So you have the senior, which would be 18 to 35 or whatever, depending on the sport. Then you have like the 30 to 40 division, 40 to 50, et cetera, et cetera. What you see is speed falls off way faster with aging than strength does. And so it's not that difficult to be 45 years old as a powerlifter and be competing, right? But you would at a pretty high level. Now you're probably not winning world championships, but you could maybe qualify for worlds or you could get real, real, real close, right? You're not that far off. When you look at, say, the forty-yard dash, you would never see a four or a hundred-yard dash. You would never see a forty-five-year-old in the Olympics for the hundred-meter. Not even close, right? They'd get hammered. They're not even going to get in the same stratosphere. When you scale right. that to, to to weightlifting, it's the same kind of thing, but not to the extent. And that's because there's a there's a much greater speed component in weightlifting than there is in powerlifting, but not nearly the speed component that there is in say sprinting, or high jumping, or anything like that. Um, you can look at sports like the NBA and people like Vince Carter can play for 20 years because their high flyers are first-hand, but after that, they develop other skills and they don't really jump as much. And so what we know is that fiber type probably predicts speed of movement more than it does strength. And we have demonstrated this in my lab many times. Uh, It's not a great proxy for figuring out who's gonna be stronger, but it's a pretty good proxy for who's faster. And so when you lose these things, when you don't do speed work, truly fast up, that's also probably going to be an issue with you because those fibers that they're really there for to move speed, to move quickly are not being used. And you may not even notice it because you're like, Oh, I'm strong. You know, 43 has ever been sure, but are you as fast? No, you're way slower. Mm, that's not great either. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's really the foundation of your answer.
0: That's really interesting. I, I wasn't aware that uh, fiber type would, would more so be a, predictor of speed as a and not necessarily strength
1: they're called fast twitch, not strong twitch
0: right so like so so that part is intuitive obviously but in terms of like being a being a decent proxy for strength that part is is somewhat surprising to me i would have assumed that uh the level of fiber type would would definitely it it
1: is weakly is somewhat so for example if i took a random person off the street um then it would be an okay proxy Okay, mm-hmm. but if you want to compare strength to strength, so if you go to World Championships, world Strongest Man or something like that, and you go biops, and we've done this before, mm-hmm. um, fiber tech won't predict anything. It won't predict anything among people that are reasonably equally trained for strength. It won't predict anything. If you want to compare people that are super strong and mm-hmm. people that are not trained at all, well, then there's yeah. going to be a strong correlation because those people that are untrained have actually lost their fast-rich fibers most likely.
0: Right.
1: So it, it'll predict big things like that, but it won't predict within group at all. That's interesting.
0: Why, why do you think that's necessarily the case? Is that just like an individual uh, variance or?
1: Oh, there's too many ways to create human movement. Fibre type right. is one part of that, but you have mechanics, like you have um, tendon, you have connective tissue, you have nervous system, you have right, right, tactics, right. Yeah. you have strategy, you have technique, you have experience. It's just too many ways uh, at that level because the margin is you know, between first and 10th place is three or 4%. Yeah. And then you can't explain that with one physiological variable.
0: Totally. no no, no that, that that makes a lot of sense that's super interesting what uh you said you were you were actually doing biopsies on on world' strongest men
1: no we've done them uh, at world championships um, we've done some very elite power lifters uh, mm-hmm. and we've done we, we did mm-hmm. it at the world championships for weightlifting a handful of years ago
0: that's awesome that's really cool
1: mm-hmm. that paper's out it's free too open access
0: that's really cool so so one thing that i kind of uh, was interested in was the the sort of impact that like plyometric training has on fiber type orientation and and potentiating strength gains because plyometrics is one of those things that you hear talked a lot about in like in, in Westside and some of the little bit more, I don't know, I don't want to say fringe conversations, but it's not generally something that you see in a lot of powerlifting programs, but there is a lot of kind of hype about it in, in research and in its potential for, for strength and, and different things like that. And so, Have you ever seen anyone successfully implement that in either strength training, or do you have any sort of like practical experience with that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that's a tremendous amount. In fact, I think plyometrics are perhaps some of the most underused training modalities uh, of of all things. Um, And this is a bigger conversation, but typically what you see happening is powerlifting and bodybuilding dominate um, the sports science discussion. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about training things, it's always, assuming you're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder. The vast majority of people that strength train though are not in those categories. Uh, so all of the discussion about training for athletes, fields athletes, those people don't talk for whatever reason, those people don't have podcasts. They don't go on forums. They don't, they get it out there. And so we, we forget about general strength training principles because the folks that are trying to get as massively strong or as big as possible are the only ones talking. I'm not saying they're the only ones loud. They're just, the, the sport coaches just don't talk. Right. And so when you look at things like plyometric, I mean, you kind of said, oh, it's kind of fringe, but if you go to like a, you know, a track strength that she goes, you're like, this is our whole program. What do you mean fringe? Yeah. You, go to, you know, Jimmy Radcliffe, you're like, what, what the hell are you talking about? Like, this is, this is how we make players at Oregon the fastest players in college football. It's a huge part of their training. So now whether or not to use that in a powerlifting program, again, I'm not the right guy to ask that question. Um, I can certainly talk about plyometrics a lot because the athletes I train use them a ton. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. because... We have to be strong, but they, what they do for a living, they, they have to be um, you know, incredibly explosive and they have to be able to handle the landing, re-land, things like that. Uh, perfect position with their feet, on one foot, et cetera, et cetera. They have to be movement-based you know, athletes. Now, one thing that is particularly interesting that I want to point a flag in is the fact that people also forget and fail to re- recognize the ability of metrics to induce hypertrophy as well. And, and I think that's fairly clear at this point. People forget about that. And I think it's just something to you know, gain explosiveness with. But you can also gain a reasonable amount of hypertrophy doing that as well. And again, it scales depending on how trained or untrained you are and familiar you are with it. Um, but at the same token, it also causes a tremendous amount of damage. Um, I mean, I just had Brian Ortega do this this weekend, um, his first kind of session through there. And he, he's in very, very good shape, right? He's ready to fight five-minute five rounds right now. He's ready for world title fight. And he just mm-hmm. got wrecked from just a little bit of plyometrics. And so they're, they're very, very damaging because we're typically not used to um, moving with that kind of intent. So when we typically do our speed stuff or even our max strength stuff in the weight room, because there's load, the, ax- the actual executed velocities is very, very low. You compare that to a max broad jump or a triple jump you know, for max distance with a lot of rest. And, and you get a whole lot more velocity and you get a big eccentric component, right, a massive one. And so just going with that actual intent and hitting those velocities when we do our overspeed stuff, when we drag you with the band, instead of, you know, you pulling on a sled where it's slowing you down, we pull you and make you go, you know, at 110% of your maximum velocity. Mm Because this this is a very, very, very different type of training. And if you want to get fast, you can add load and and slow you down and that'll help your acceleration, but it won't help your maximum velocity. You, Mm -hmm. You do the opposite, like we've done with a number of studies where... We put a harness on you and pull you up in the air when you do vertical jumps instead of pulling you down to the ground. And we see clearly people get a lot better at jumping high when we do that. So we've done the same thing with a baseball swing. Um, You swing a bat faster when you swing a lighter bat, not a heavier one. And so this entire end of the spectrum is is typically ignored or non-recognized in a lot of these communities because getting really fast is not an actual training goal or they don't really understand it. want to get like kind of faster but within their strength side of the spectrum they don't really understand that whole max true velocity um end of the spectrum so again i don't know about integrating these things in a powerlifting perspective but uh if you want to talk about the science this end of it or how i integrate with our folks like this is something we do a whole lot Mm -hmm. because being really fast is really important when you're trying to kick somebody else in the head or not get kicked in the head
0: that's uh that's one thing that i've always found was kind of that powerlifting coaches even myself like i've definitely been guilty this as well where you kind of have this idea of like this is what training looks like this is you know hypertrophy and and people will talk about things like DUP within the context of powerlifting and so you know a lot of the times I'll hear people being like DUP is retarded like don't use it blah, blah blah and it's like yeah but like you're not a season like you're not you're not you're not an athlete that's playing multiple times per week maybe or anything like that, where like you're not necessarily looking to get better, but you kind of want to like just preserve things as much as possible, and maybe make some gains, maybe in, in the season. And it, it's so funny that you don't necessarily think about things like that unless you are, you know, a field sport athlete, like you were saying, or or more of like a broadly speaking general strength and conditioning coach. Um, and I think that's really to the detriment of of coaches and, and athletes in and powerlifting because you're really limited in in what you're exposed to, right? Like you were saying about plyometrics, about um, you know isometrics are, are all sorts of different things that you know could have a potential maybe not necessarily directly but like you were saying if, if maybe from like you know just randomly throwing it out there maybe like uh, tendons and ligaments and, and strengthening and that sort of stuff you know what I mean it's like okay well if your your tendons are a little stiffer you're probably not going to get injured as as much you know or, or maybe it's going to help with with force transmission a little bit better maybe penation angle is going to change a little bit better in your favor and all sorts of different things and so that's something that I've started to look into, but it's it's really like the more that I look into it, the more I'm like, holy crap! Like, I've, I'm seeing about this much, you know. And and there's, the more as, that much, I, there's yeah. as much
1: there as there is with the strength training stuff. Right? Yeah. So there, all the information you spent ten years trying to learn about how to just get stronger, uh, but there's as much in the plyometric side too that you just you haven't seen. So that that part of it is yeah, just just not appreciated. Um, I have an episode in my podcast from the first season. Or I outline why this exact black hole happens. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so this is exactly- Is that the, 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 the body and mind? What is it called again?
1: The body of knowledge.
0: Body of knowledge, that's right. I, I got it a while back, but then there, I think there weren't an episode for a little while and so I-
1: Oh no, we only released like six to eight episodes a year.
0: Yeah, okay. So, so, we spent, <laughs> so I was like, we, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> we spent a lot of time writing each episode and really trying to make them you know, different and unique. And, and this is one of the first ones I wanted to get into is why people see this. Uh, so I trace the history of our field a little bit um, mm-hmm. as a method of showing you why the voices have dominated have dominated and why the, the, the thinking is there. And what people don't even realize is um, we have blinders on in this field. And that's okay, that's totally fine. As long as you realize that you have blinders on. Uh, and, and if you don't want those blinders on, then you need to take them off and realize there's so many other parts of this field that are not hypertrophy, that are not powerlifting. I, mean, I guess no slight to powerlifting, but but just that's the that's the thing. So just be careful when you're making posts and you're saying things like, "Oh, never do this," or "This style of training sucks," or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, okay, again, okay, maybe for powerlifting or maybe for you know physique athletes, but what about for a tennis player? What about and, and that's the people like, "Oh, well, I don't I don't work with them. That's not my yeah. audience." Well, that's a chicken shit answer. Just to say you 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 up and you didn't think about it right and you're not you don't, you don't you know that's not in the front of your mind that's fine those are your blinders acknowledging them. We'll just come out the gates to be like look this post is dedicated to bone or i'm speaking yeah. with the goal of this is probably in mind then i think this sucks, sucks 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 but we can't generally call these things good or bad training ideas philosophies or principles mm-hmm. when we haven't considered the vast majority of what people are training for
0: no uh, agreed for sure like even even something like specificity and, and powerlifting especially tends to you kind of held up on this pedal stool and I'm not saying it's not important, but at the same time, it's like, okay, who are the strongest athletes out there? I would argue that strong men are at least equally good at powerlifting as powerlifters, you know? And they're and, a whole lot better at strong men. Yeah. And they're just insane athletes. And it's like, okay, well, is their training really specific? I mean, yeah, but it's way less specific than squat bench and deadlift. And they all seem to be really good at all of those. So I don't know. <laughs> you know, no, the,
1: you want to make it even worse. just go to the NFL. Those guys are freaks. If you've They're ever been around free. in those weight rooms and you would see what those yeah. folks pull and you're like, what the hell? With no technique, no training, they have no, and their bodies are beat to living crap and they can just yeah. fire up absolutely absurd numbers. Um, so, I mean, that yeah. style of training is pretty good too.
0: Yeah, when, like when I got into, uh, so the reason why I got into Olympic weightlifting first and then eventually powerlifting was um, when, when I retired from boxing, I, uh, I had been coaching Ashley, an, an athlete who he was like a two-time Olympian in, in bobsleigh. And this guy would do like, like rebound jumps, like multiple hurdle jumps. And you're talking like five feet, like five feet high. And the guy's like 5'10". Like he's not super tall. And he would just be like, boom, boom, boom. And I saw that and it was like, it's almost like an optical illusion when you see it. You're like, wait, like, I know I saw that, but my brain can't really process what actually happened. And I just thought it was so impressive what he was doing. And it's like, okay, you're not training to be super strong. You're not training to be, you know, any of these things, but you're all of those things. Like, that's ridiculous. And, and yeah, like exactly like what you're saying is, you know, these football athletes who aren't training for any of those things specifically. You know, like that, that's obviously part of it, but they're training to be better, better field athletes, uh, first and foremost, you know, it's and about
1: asking better questions of what are you training for?
0: Yeah. And, and, and they're don't just do a good job of asking those questions. They're absolutely phenomenal athletes who, who could realistically like either walk onto a bodybuilding stage in a lot of cases and smoke those guys or walk onto a powerlifting stage and smoke those guys. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've definitely seen that happen where a couple, a couple athletes will. Will transition and all of a sudden you're like hey where did this guy come from like ray williams is, is a great example he was a football player and you know all of a sudden he's coming out and he's squatting a thousand for singles like five times a week and you're like uh i don't know like <laughs> there must be something to that
1: well we've seen it in the uh, ufc too right like folks come off yeah, uh, yeah come out of the nfl or a year or two we're kind of in the fringe and they spend a year or two training in mma and are, and they're already in ufc and, and they're top 10 or, or they get closer or they're competitive which is because it's the athleticism is so insanely high. Yeah.
0: So we're, we're coming up on that hour mark and, and I want to be you know, respectful of your time. So what's one opinion you have that sort of either goes against the grain or you don't necessarily have any, any research to substantiate it at this point, or maybe the mechanisms aren't entirely understood, but it's something that you've seen from a practical experience standpoint that uh, you feel confident, at least in, in, in the moment saying, you know what, I do believe this to be true. We'll see why it's the case later on.
1: I've been on record for over 10 years saying the same thing for this question. (laughs) Uh, I'm a full believer that hyperplasia is a reasonably normal, um, somewhat common cause or result of of strength training. So if you're unfamiliar with that term, that simply means we typically say that hyperplasia doesn't happen in humans. Uh, Hyperplasia being the growth of new muscle fibers. Uh, So typically we say that you get hypertrophy, so your muscle gets larger, either one of two ways you grow new fibers or the fibers you have get larger. And we have yet to document hyperplasia happening. And so the assumption is it's all hypertrophy. That's causing whole muscle hypertrophy from the single fiber size. But I think we have enough evidence now and we've seen it in so many other animals. In fact, it it, it is fairly clearly documented. Um, The questions that remain are, you know, what are the situation and circumstances that have to happen for us to see this in humans as part of normal training, right? So um, we could do all kinds of crazy extreme models and see it, but, um, you know, is it something that happens in six weeks? Probably not. Six months? Mm, Don't even know about that. But after years of training, I I think that we start to see that happening. So um, we have a lot of, like I said, we have a lot of missing information there, but I I do think that eventually we're going to figure out yeah, this does happen. It's not a zero. It's not half of your hypertrophy or even close, but it is some measurable percentage. That's not phenomenal.
0: Where can the listeners find, uh, find you on social media?
1: Yeah, like I said, the, we haven't released an episode of our podcast in a long time. I don't even know a little well, but the, the first three seasons are up. The Body Knowledge, That's you can go back and, and binge all, all those if you like. Uh, the YouTube, so I put up basically all of my, especially with Corona, going on right now, that we're teaching from home for the the foreseeable future, and so I, I just put all my classes on YouTube. So all of my strength training classes, program design, muscle physiology, nutrition, all that stuff is all up on my YouTube page. You know, just one hundred percent for free. No newsletters or anything to sign up for. It's it's all up there, and um, of course, social media, Twitter and Instagram are the best for me.
0: Awesome. So all those links are going to be in the show notes, uh, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on the episode. It was, it was really awesome to chat. I've been following your stuff for, for a long time, like I said. And so it was cool to kind of chat face-to-face and just get some of your insights on, uh, on some of these things that are a little bit uh, less talked about, let's say, in the powerlifting community.
1: Sounds good, man. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thanks. Take care, man. See ya. Hey,
0: guys. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at stacked strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly. So make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.